You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. Our guest today is Joshua Cooperamo. He's the co-CEO of Kissinger Associates and the author of The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks, a book that Fareed Zakaria simply calls intelligent. You can't get a much better review than that. Joshua, what is The Seventh Sense? So, you know, as we look around the world today, there are any number of things that are surprising and sort of unnerving. The most expensive war in terrorism in human history, which has been running for 15 years now, seems to produce more terrorists. The most aggressive economic policy designed to save the middle class that you could possibly imagine actually seems to be gutting the middle class and making the world financial system more fragile. The more people we try to include in our politics, the more extreme it becomes. And so what the seven senses is an understanding that actually all of these problems I've described are the same problem. They're all because of networks. They're all because of the way that linked, connected systems behave differently and in very surprising ways. There are some people who have the ability to look at those systems and say, oh, I see where these interconnections are. So you and I might look at a car seat and we think that's just a car seat, but the guys who start Uber look at a car seat and say, oh, when that thing is connected, it changes its underlying economic logic. So the book is really the story of how to get this ability to look at things, whether it's a presidential candidate or a car seat, and see all of the potential that's locked up inside it. Was there something that you saw, heard, that made you grab this theme? You know, I was very interested in trying to write a book that would explain to people the nature of the shift of power that was going on in our world today. And that's one that I witnessed from the perspective of being an advisor to some of the largest corporations and investors in the world, but also from thinking about problems of national security in particular, which is it was clear there was something strange going on, right? All these problems we've just described, there must be some sort of underlying dilemma there. And what I really went on the hunt for was what is that essential idea? And what I discovered is that there are people who have this ability to see what's actually going on at a deeper level in the system that they're really invisible to the rest of us. And I should mention you're a director still, aren't you, of Starbucks and FedEx? I am, yes. Now, the futurist Ray Cruzel wrote of the law of accelerating returns, noting that we won't experience 100 years of progress in the 21st century will be more like 20,000 years of progress. Do you agree with that? And it certainly sounds disruptive. Well, I mean, it's more than disruptive. And I think it's one of the points I make in the book, and I spend a lot of time trying to explain to readers some of these concepts, is the way in which time is getting more and more compressed. You can think that during the Industrial Revolution, what really got compressed was space, right? First there were trains, and there were ships and planes, and suddenly, whether you had to transport something 50 miles or 500 miles or 5,000 miles was much less important. What we see going on in our world today is the compression of time. If you want to know something, you can find it out more or less instantly. A stock trade can happen overnight all the way across the world. And so that reduction of time, which I think is sort of what Kurzweil is talking about, is this rapid, rapid acceleration of innovation. I think it's sort of a little bit abstract to say, well, you're going to see 20,000 years worth of innovation in 100 years, because no, it's no going to happen. No way to calculate that. Sure. Right, also it's going to be happening in the next 100 years, but it's clear that you're heading into a period where Many of the most exciting things happening are going to be fundamentally very erosive to a lot of the institutions we've come to count on. You know, I, I'm not sure if our listeners can hear the thunder in the background, but if they can, it's probably a good way for me to ask this question. How is Donald Trump a striking example of the seven cents? Well, again, I, you know, if you and I had sat here a year ago and we had said, who's most likely to be the presidential candidate? The guy with two presidents in the family and four decades of political experience and tens of millions of dollars from the traditional Republican establishment, or the guy with five million Twitter followers, I can tell you exactly which one both of us would have picked. The reality is that Trump, through his network connections, is connected to an ability to influence the way the world thinks 
that was invisible to most of the traditional press. At the same time, one of the things that was going on is because of the nature of the way the network systems were eroding the middle class, were changing economics, were making people feel more and more insecure, it created a political movement where there was a lack of trust in the establishments. And so one of the important features of our world today is the crisis of legitimacy that affects almost every established institution. There's very few institutions in the world you can think of today that are more respected than they were 10 years ago. And that's a sign that something's going on. It's a sign that the fundamental premise of those institutions, which was largely based on ideas from the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, so is starting to come into question. So how does that change the nature question. of the of the nation state? Well, the nation state, I think, continues to exist because it always is an expression of but history and, identi and identity. The problem is that the right way to think of a nation state is not as something defined by borders, but is as a network, right? It is a network of people who choose to be American, just as the group of people who speak Swahili is a network, or the group of people who speak Han Chinese is a network. And the nation state is simply one of many networks that will be layering one atop another. The thing that happens is connectivity changes the nature of our lives in very fundamental ways, and it liberates people from the nation state, but the nation state will continue to exist. It just got, we've got to understand that we're not trying to understand simple networks here. We're not saying, let's just study Facebook or let's just study the stock market. What's interesting is the complex interaction of all these networks on top of one another. And this is something that can be understand. There's a whole discipline called network science that I talk about in the book that explains how we can think about these things. But until you start to look at it, it's all sort of baffling. And then you see, oh, actually, this is this interaction of all these interesting forces. So where does ISIS fit into this? Did they understand it better than we did? I mean, ISIS. Better than our military? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, so I don't know about our military, but certainly our political leaders who looked at ISIS and said, these guys are the JV of terror, didn't understand what they understood, which is that by having the ability to produce these well-produced, horrifying short videos of people being beheaded and making them go viral, they were able to have more impact, more influence, and garner more attention than the Sixth Fleet was able to do. Now, this in network theory is a very well-known phenomenon. It's this ability to constantly maintain what in network theory is called state, but this connection with your audience. And what they figured out is just how do you constantly pulse this network? How do they use this connection that's available all over the world to change the way in which terrorism occurs? You have to remember, terrorism is fundamentally a psychological activity. There's no terrorist is going to destroy the United States of America. But it is designed to influence people's psychology. And so you can imagine a world of networks, particularly instant networks, that kind of psychological warfare is very, very effective. So what are our options? Well, the right option in terms of ISIS is to put the war on terror in the context of a much larger grand strategy, which is try to say, what are we trying to achieve in the world today? Where do we think the world is going? ISIS is an important feature of that world, but it's really overall not the most important feature. The most important feature is this emergence of a world of networks. One of the features of networks is they're very vulnerable to these small attacks, right? It used to be that if you wanted to make a big impact on the system, you had to get a big army together, you had to put them through the fold to gap, you had to start a major war. Now, small forces anywhere in the system can have a big impact, and that means the system itself needs to be redesigned. I want to drill down a little bit more. Define your use of the word network. Yeah, so this is a very important issue. A network is basically any collection of connected points. So people who live in Dallas is a network. People who speak Chinese is a network. People who trade okay. in Bitcoin is a network. Networks are also things like LinkedIn or So it's Facebook. how you tie these networks together. But, but networks are essentially any collection of points that are joined by links. And that can include people trading in particular kind of commodities. It can include people who are forming a fundamentalist terror group. But networks are basically defined by this ability that we now have more than ever before to easily link to other people and to do it at a very high bandwidth and almost instantly. You know, we have just a few more minutes and few people know China as well as you do. So I'd like to ask you, how does China's leadership view the Obama's administration so-called pivot to Asia at this time? From the beginning, China has been concerned about the nature of the security situation in Asia and the Asian Pacific region. China, you have to remember, is a country with thousands of years of history 
that really dates its contemporary history to 1849 and the Opium Wars when the British attacked and invaded southern China and that then led to a process in which China was invaded by nine different nations and probably lost about a third of its population before 1949 when New China was established. Mm -hmm. So China is unusually sensitive to questions of territories around its borders and alliances around its borders. What China cares most about is the ability to maintain the space for its peaceful development. And so they look at the Obama administration pivot to China as something that to some degree is quite worrisome to them. Their great concern is being encircled by a number of nations that are inimical to China's interests, and that's the element that they're now trying to balance off in their own policy. And you know, I've been struck, we've done a number of programs on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it seems like it's much a political alliance as it is an economic one. And I'm wondering how you rate its chance of passage, not just for the United States, where there's growing opposition, but also in other countries. You know, I think as you travel the region, you find that there's much less opposition in the Asian Pacific nations to TPP than there is in the United States. I think there is an awareness in that part of the world, because if you look at the history of that part of the world, particularly since the end of the Cold War, the success stories have all been about trade. They've all been about openness and exchange. And when you meet with people in these countries, while there's concern about the downside and the risks of trade, there's overwhelmingly a public mood that would like to support the creation of the TPP as only a way to accelerate trade. It's very hard to handicap its passage in the United States. There's obviously a lot of political problems associated with it. You know, the reality is the United States has gained more from trade over the years than it has lost from trade. TPP gives the country an unusual opportunity to dictate the terms of trade and help shape the terms of trade going forward and presents, as you point out, an important political instrument as much but as But if the United States doesn't pass it, other countries, it's, it's dead. dead. That's right. Right. Yeah. And do you think Secretary Clinton, if she's elected, can move back? You know, I don't think it's possible to have an American grand strategy that doesn't emphasize the centrality of trade and economics and American security interests. And so whether TPP has to be re-engineered or rethought because of some of the commitments that she's made on the campaign trail is a separate conversation. But when we think about national power, we should always think about comprehensive national power, which is not simply our military power, but our economic power. And particularly in a world of networks, there's nothing more important than having strong economic trade and investment ties with other countries. Well, I want to thank you for being with us. Again, congratulations. It's a wonderful book. And thank you. It certainly deserves all the attention it's been getting. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. Our guest today has been Joshua Cooper Ramo. He's the author of The Seventh Sense. To learn about a World Affairs Council in your community, go to worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Thanks for listening.